Okay, with that, we're in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 34. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, I ask that your spirit would guide us this day as we um, continue, continue our journey through the gospel of Matthew. Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, help us to get a real sense of what happened in today's um, passage, Lord, that we would um, be able to imagine what the disciples felt, what, hap- what, what went on with them. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would, through your spirit, um, Lord, guide us into um, applications for our life. Lord, may we see how this applies. Um, Father, I pray that you would speak uh, to us through your word. Lord, we are thankful um, for all that you're doing in our midst, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he'd sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became, affr- he became frightened. And, be- and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. When they'd crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you um, for this day. We thank you, Lord, um, for your word. Lord, we pray that you would guide us this day. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the very first word um, that we see here is immediately. So there, there's, there's sort of this idea, it places us in context to sort of review the story um, let's see here. Did I put the pointer back? Okay. So we have the Sea of Galilee. Um, the story had moved along from Nazareth. Jesus had been sort of uh, kicked out of his town. Again, they rejected him. They made their way back up to Capernaum, which is sort of the home base of Jesus. Um, when they get there, they get word sort of from Tiberius that John the Baptist had been uh, beheaded um, by Herod um, the Tetrarch. Um, they decide to get away to go over to Bethsaida um, to, to, to have sort of a, some time of respite to get away. But the crowds had, had seen him, so they come running from, you know, it says they came running from all of the cities around the area uh, to Bethsaida. And Jesus spent the day teaching and healing and, and helping them. He had great compassion on them. Uh, as, the, as the night, as the day came to a close, uh, Jesus sort of looks to, to Philip and says, hey, where can we get food around here? Um, how are we going to feed these people? And Philip's like, "Are you are you crazy? Like, they're we're in the middle of we're in the middle of nowhere, and 
And how in the world do you expect us to pay for all of these people's food? I mean, there's, there's upwards of, of 15 to 25,000 people when you count the women and children. And so uh, they go around, they, they, they do a survey of what food's available. They find a little boy with, with five loaves, you know, think of little Ritz crackers and two little sardines and his little lunchable meal. And the little boy offers his meal to the disciples, and the disciples take it to Jesus and say, this is all we have. And so Jesus, we're told, took that, blessed it, multiplied it, fed the people so they were satisfied and that there were um, ample leftovers. And so that's um, where our story picks up today. We're going to see that uh, Jesus sends away the crowd. He sends away the disciples. Um, the crowds, he's going to disperse them. Jesus is going to head north up into the hills here. If you can, if you were to continue this way northeast, um, you begin, you're the, sort of at the foothills of um, today what's known as the Golan Heights, a very strategic place for Israel where you overlook into Syria. And so he's going to head up into the hills. He's going to send his disciples back into the boat to get away. Um, their aim is to head to Capernaum. Uh, we know that they're heading back to sort of their hometown. Uh, the storm is going to blow them off course. And they're going to land about right here. It's not on the map, but uh, Gennesaret is right in this area. Um, this is, for those of you who have been there, uh, this is the place where, if you remember going to see the Jesus boat, so this is the Jesus boat area. Um, and so, so that's sort of where we pick up in the story. So immediately, we're told, he made the disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And so this... Um, Matthew doesn't go into the details about why did he break up the party? Why does he send everybody away? Over in John 15, I have sort of the two other accounts listed here. Um, I'll reference them. But in Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52, and John 6, 15 through 21, uh, these are the two other accounts of the story. Uh, Luke doesn't reference the story. Uh, but we're told over in John chapter 6, verse 15, um, so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him a king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And so we see that following the feeding of, of the 5,000, um, that's 5,000 men, uh, they, um, their bellies are full. They recognize that Jesus um, feeds them. And, and suddenly, this is our man. We, we, we want to name him king. He can keep us full. I met with a guy on Wednesday, and we've, we've, we both had visited Nicaragua. So we started talking about uh, Nicaragua um, culture and, and politics of Nicaragua. And, and uh, the, pre the current president um, is, th they, they pride themselves that they have a democracy. But, but the president's king, or the, president's, uh, the president of Nicaragua, his key is prior to the elections, what he does is he, he basically provides a ton of rice and beans to the people. And so he feeds the people, and all of a sudden, the people come out and vote for him. And so if people, when they really are hand-to-mouth sort of thing in, 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 in survival, um, the man who can feed them, they want to make him king. And so these people recognize that Jesus just miraculously fed them. And so they're like, you're our man. We want to make you the king. We're going to install you um, we're going to have a coronation. We're going to make you our king. We're going to overthrow Rome. You're going to feed us every day. It's going to be wonderful. There's a lot of political comments I could make at this right now, but I'm going to uh, <clears throat> withhold that. 
And so Jesus says, no, no, you guys are, this is not what my kingdom is about. And so he, he, he disperses the people. As I've been pondering this, I, I, I keep thinking about what, what did Jesus go through in, in these 25,000 people basically um, trying to um, install him as their king, uh, excited about him. And in some levels, I believe that this might have been a temptation uh, for Christ. We, we know um, that Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. If we were to go back to Matthew, I think it's in chapter 4, where, the, the, where, where, where Satan tempts Christ, there's three temptations. And on the third temptation, what does Satan do? He brings him up onto a hill and he shows him all of the kingdoms of the world. And he says, you know what? If you just bow down to me right now, I will, I will give this all to you. You can, you can bypass the cross. And, and Jesus at that last one, he was the one that says, get away from me, Satan. It, it, and, it, and we can't see, think that, oh, Jesus in his humanity didn't, didn't like wrestle. I mean, he, he, he's sinless. He can't sin because he's God. But to say that he couldn't feel the weight of it, and, and at some level, like, I wonder, was this a temptation of Christ? As he says, he just disperses the crowd. They, they go away. He sends his disciples away. Many commentators um, concerning the disciples, he basically, as this uproar happens, um, they believe that Jesus sends his disciples back into the boat because he doesn't want their thinking contaminated by the crowds. He's trying to teach them about the kingdom of heaven and his purposes and his ways. And so for for them to begin thinking that Jesus is coming um, during this first coming, that he was there to sort of overthrow Rome, that he was to feed them, that he was to care for all of their needs in a physical sense, um, he didn't want them uh, to have their thinking contaminated. And so he sends them away. I, I do believe um, in looking at the crowds, one of the applications um, this is a pretty straight-up story, but there's not a whole lot of applications aren't provided for us here. Um, but but thinking about this so often, I believe that people um, come to Christ with an agenda. Um, I've heard it said that people view Jesus as a rabbit's foot. You know, you have a rabbit's foot, you rub it, and you 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 hope that you get good luck based on you do a certain thing, then they are supposed to respond. And so a lot of people come to Christ, and we have to question ourselves, do we come to Christ sort of as a means to an end, that if we come to Jesus, then he'll take care of our needs. He'll uh, do all of these things. Um, ultimately, he's our servant and we become God. Um, we don't come to Christ with our agenda. We come to Christ submitted or we're supposed to, um, to follow his agenda and to, let him, uh, to allow him to have his way in our lives. And so this crowd is off. Um, they go away. The disciples go away on their own. Um, verse 23 here. Um, and after he'd sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. So we have the idea that this is sunset time. The, the, the course of our story in these next few hours, to put a sort of a time stamp, um, I get the impression that he disperses the crowd right around sunset. Maybe the sun's gone down, but um, there's still ambient light around. Um, he puts the disciples in the sailboat, which which would, or not the sailboat, the likely a rowboat. Um, it, it, this wasn't a big deal. Um, for Of the disciples, you had many who were 
um, watermen. I mean, Matthew, the tax collector, probably wasn't very much of a waterman, but, but the bulk of them were fishermen. And to get into the boat at night would, would make a lot of sense. Uh, their, their climate in Israel and the Galilee is very much like uh, we have it here in, in San Diego, in, in this region. What happens during the day? The winds sort of pick up. Why do the winds pick up? Because we have a, we have a desert out to our east and we have an ocean to the west. And as that heat air, hot air rises, it sucks the cool air across and we have, we have the winds that basically come across. Same thing in Israel. You have the Mediterranean to the west and you have the, the big, big desert to the east. And during the day, as it gets hot, the winds kind of kick up. By nighttime, the desert cools down significantly and everything calms down at night. So, so the night would make sense. You, most nights, you have a very calm uh, night to transit across. It uh, makes for easy paddling. But we'll see that things are going to go differently this night. Um, Jesus goes up to the mountain. Um, verse 23 is, is really a continuation of verse, I think it's 13. If we were to go back to verse 13, remember the, the whole situation. Um, we know that the disciples had come back from their mission trip. They'd sort of debriefed Jesus on what had happened or they were in the midst of it. And news comes that, that Herod had... Uh, beheaded John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, close friend. They were all in mourning. This was a deep, deep loss for them. And in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, we see, now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. So his intentions all along have been to, has been to sort of get away, to have some, some quiet time, to catch his breath, to sort of recuperate from um, this, this tragic news. But we're told that when he arrives, the crowd sort of uh, interrupted him. There was this distraction. But now Jesus is getting back. He sent the disciples away. Um, hopefully that night on the boat, they would have some alone time to sort of take in, uh, undistracted by the crowd, sort of pondering what had just happened to them with, with the feeding of the 5,000, that great miracle. Um, Jesus intends to, to go up on the mountain to, to pray uh, this begins at sunset. We know by the end of the story, it's the fourth watch. As we all know, the fourth watch, that's between 3 and 6 a.m. So it's a <laughs> naturally. Um, so it's a long night that this, this, this window sort of takes place. Um, he's up there praying. Um, I, I think about Jesus' situation. He's had a long day of, well, he's had just a long probably year at this point. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's come from Nazareth, going there, trying to reach his, his, his fellow hometown people who, who run him out of town. Um, he then comes down, gets word about John the Baptist being executed. Um, the weight of losing a loved one, and then to lose a loved one um, by the sense of beheading, it, I think is all the more tragic. And then he gets there already exhausted, and he has 25,000 people there that he's teaching, he's healing, he's ministering to. He's exhausted. And if, I, and if I was to walk up this mountain to go spend some time with the Father, I would be snoring probably uh, before too long because just um, sheer exhaustion. But then on the other hand, sometimes when you have these days when you're just going, 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 and it's just never ending, um, you lay down in your bed and what happens? Sometimes your mind just kind of clicks on. <laughs> And so I don't, I don't know what Jesus is experiencing here, but he, we're told that he um, 
carved out time to, to spend with, with the Father that he begins to pray. And I wonder what he prayed. We're, we're not told. Um, we, we know, um, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but we know from Mark chapter 6, verse 48, which I'm going to read in a little bit, uh, we'll, we, we come to learn that where Jesus was praying, he's up on a hill, but he has a vantage point on the disciples. So he's up there praying, and he can kind of observe the fiasco that they're going through all night because eventually it gets to the point where he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to go down to them. And, and so he's up on this hill, and I imagine as he's praying, I, I believe that he would probably be praying uh, for his disciples as he watched them. Like we, we know that over the course of the ministry and his great high priestly prayer in the night which he was betrayed, we know that he prayed over them, he prayed for them. These were the 12 men that he was sort of investing in, that he was, um, as we'll see in a few chapters, that Jesus gives the keys uh, of the kingdom to them to basically run with the ministry um, as, the early, as a church is established. Um, I believe that as he saw the people of Israel, we know in other places that as Jesus looks over at Jerusalem and he sees how the people had so missed the mark and missed uh, his plan of what he was doing, that he was heartbroken over them. And I imagine that he was all of these people that wanted to make him king, that he scattered, they'd missed the very thing which he was trying to teach to them. Um, I don't know if he's feeling frustration, but I imagine that he's praying for the people of Israel. Um, Herod and his family have been a constant sort of um, thorn in Jesus' side from the day he was born. Uh, Herod the Great is trying to execute his, all of, he kills all of the boys in Bethlehem. Um, now, now John the Baptist is, is executed. Um, I wonder if he's praying for the whole Herod situation and what, what's happening um, and then I wonder about this whole temptation. I mean, this whole, that he could bypass the cross. We, we know by the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying, um, he's sweating, uh, not only sweat, but he's so strained that, that, that his capillaries burst and blood comes out with the sweat and that there's great weight on him um, on the night in which he was betrayed and arrested. You know, we all know the prayer, Lord, if this cup could pass for me, let it pass. So there's a whole lot of op options which Jesus could be praying for. And as I think about this, uh, this aspect of Jesus carving out some time to pray in the middle of the night, um, this is Jesus. Like, this is God carving out time. And, and I think about my, my wiring, and, and I know normally the first thing that gets sort of carved out of my life is if I get busy, is like, well, well, we can just chop out prayer time. Like we can, well, it, well, and then it becomes a problem. It's like, well, I didn't have prayer time sort of scheduled. So what, what am I going to chop out? Like, and so I recognize here, I see this and I, I see, well, here's Jesus throughout the gospels. He makes so much time to, to be sort of ministered to and to be cared for and to seek the father's will. Um, as he goes through his life, what, like, what excuse do I have for not being intentional about this? Um, th this year, I've, I've been really convicted about this. I know I've mentioned it a few times, um, but I've really tried to be more intentional about being in the Word. And like, I, I mean, I have, to, I have to be in the Word every week because I, every Sunday I have to teach on it. 
but sometimes when you're just teaching on it, it's like, well, you can read just for the sake of, well, I've got to teach it on Sunday, so I'm going to be studying it, and I can kind of just, you know. But I've really been committed this year to, to basically waking up in the morning and, and, and reading sort of the, the Bible, like not, not passages that I'm preaching on, just, just going through and, and recording little prayers. And, and this year, it's, it's so far... Um, you know, we're almost through February. I'm two months in. I'm going strong. I'm uh, 52 days in to, to 365 days. Um, but, but a prayer that I often pray for others and, and that I really have been praying for myself this year and is a tremendous prayer that I think we all should pray um, is given to us by the Apostle Paul in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, these are some of the most beautiful verses. It's sort of a, a guideline on how you could pray for somebody. Um, uh, and so in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul writes this as he writes to the church that's in Colossae. He writes, For this reason also, since the day we have heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So the, the first thing that Paul prays for here is that there would be a knowledge concerning the will of God, that, that, that you'd have spiritual wisdom um, and understanding so that the purpose of this wisdom, this understanding of spiritual things, the purpose is found in verse 10, so that you would walk um, in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's so much in that prayer. I mean, I, 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 we can't spend time to it, but I but that Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, it's such a wonderful template of how to pray. You can pray it for yourself. You can pray it for others. And it really has been my, uh, a, a, a prayer of my heart this year that I would grow deeper with the Lord and, and, and really in fellowship with Him. And, and my prayer is that we too, as a, as a congregation, um, that we would grow closer to our Lord um, each and every day. And so Jesus is up there praying. Um, verse 24. So, but the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, and the wind was contrary. So if we were to go over to John 6, verse 19, John sort of gives um, a, 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 like a, a mile indicator. Well, he doesn't give a mile indicator, but the translators in the NIV have actually um, done the math for you. So we learn over in John 6, verse 19, that the disciples are about three to four miles out at the, at the Sea of Galilee. Um, so if they leave at Bethsaida, they're just trying to get to Capernaum. Like they, they shouldn't be that far out, but the wind is like blasting them way out into the ocean. I mean, on the ocean, into the sea, of, into the lake. Um, normally, this wouldn't be a big deal. Like this wasn't a big no-no by by... Uh, experienced wa watermen, like, hey, you shouldn't be paddling the boat after sunset. It's dangerous out there. There's the boogeyman's out there. Like, 
To go out at sea is, is not a big deal. Um, I have some experience in the water at night, and, and typically it's like, it's no big deal. It's just dark out, and you just, like, whatever, you just go. It's no big deal. It's normally calm at night. And so we see that the wind um, is being contrary. Some, I don't know that there's a, a, a spiritual indi- in, like implication here. Some, some have made the case, I'm not going to rule it out, that Jesus tells them to go, and they make the point, well, because they're trying to be obedient to, 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 to Christ, um, as they go out, Satan sort of comes against them and buffets them and, and sends this wind that's leading them, of course. I, it might be over-spiritualizing the text, but there, there's probably some good spiritual truth in that. I do think that when we step out um, and, and follow God, that, that resistance can come. Um, I do think that spiritual warfare is real and legitimate, and as we step out, there's, there's resistance. Um, I, I don't know that that's actually the point of this text. I, I, um, Possibly, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to. Um, but so the, 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 the wind is blowing them off course. The storm is, is, is really messing with them. I um, As I read this story, I think of one incident I had back in, I, I think it was in 1996. Um, <clears throat> well, I have a lot of stories about like the environment just not cooperating and how scary it can get and how... Um, when you're out on the great body of water and, and when the environment is working against you, you realize how small you are and how incompetent you are to, to battle against the forces. Um, in 1996, I think it was like September, we, um, as a platoon, we were sent up to Santa Barbara to do work on the go plats, gas and oil platforms. Um, there was a working relationship with Chevron. We were to go out there and practice sort of attacking their gas and oil platforms. But it was El Nino was pumping that year, and it was a re, it like not like our El Nino so far this year, but it was it was booming El Nino, and so the the swells were so huge that getting onto the oil platform uh, it was becoming too dangerous. We had a guy that had his well, it's another story, but his fingers my my good buddy had his fingers sort of like uh, popped the tips of them. He had emergency surgery, so we said, hey, we're we're taking the day off. We're not gonna <laughs> we're gonna put it on pause because it's getting too dangerous. And so then I was more of an avid surfer, and I was in way better shape and like way more of a young man uh, back in 96 than I am today. And so I'm like, hey, the surf's booming. I'm going down to Rincon. And if, if you've ever driven from San Diego to Santa Barbara, there's that huge stretch from, from Ventura to Santa Barbara where you're right on the coastline. Right before you come into Santa Barbara, at, uh, it's not Calip, it's not, I think it's Carpinteria. Um, there's a point there. It's a world-famous surf break. It's a perfect peeling uh, left, and, and uh, it only breaks on, it has to be a direct west swell to come in through the islands. And so I was like, I'm going to go check out the surf break. And a, a couple of the guys in the platoon, I'm like, hey, you want to go? I'm going to go check it out. I get down there, and it must have been like 18 to 25 foot, just perfect. I mean, right out of a magazine. And I'm like, Guys, I got to go find a surf shop. I got to buy a surfboard. I don't have a surfboard. I need to go get a surfboard. And so then we, we, I find some surf shop, and I find the closest thing to it. It was, it was not the right board. You need a bigger board. And so I'm like, well, I only have this much money. I'll buy this surfboard, which was totally the wrong equipment for the task at hand. <clears throat> and I grab the board, and my buddies are like, Gunnar, are you sure this is a good idea? I'm like, I don't care if this is a good idea or a bad idea. That surf, that's like world-famous surf. Like the whole, the whole uh, 
street there along the edge was filled with like photographers, like professional photographers documenting this swell. So I grabbed the surfboard and I, I go to paddle out. I probably made it like three quarters of the way out. And when surf is like 18 to 25 feet, you're literally going up mountains. And, and in between the mountains, when you're in the valley of these mountains, you can't see the shoreline. You can't see the outside where anybody is. It's just like desolate. And so I paddle out in this little, like, way too short of a board. And, and it didn't take me too long. I got out far enough to where I was like, oh, man, this is, like, kind of a bad idea. Um, but I'm committed at this point. And, and, but what was happening is all of the waves are coming in. And as they're coming in, it's just a massive amount of water that along the rocks, probably for like 100 yards, it created this, this river flowing south. And probably, I don't know how many miles down the road, there's another like little false island that's actually a receiving station for the oil that's way, way, way down there. And I kind of remember there was a couple of us out in the lineup, and it's like, dude, what are we going to do? And it's like, well, we have two options. We can go in. I don't know what happened to that guy, but somewhere out there I had this conversation. It's like, well, we can either basically go in straight through the rocks and and we're going to take a beating. Like, you're going to take a beating, or you could hop in the river and you could basically take it down like three or four miles to that receiving station down there. And I remembered, like, there's no way I'm going to get pushed way off course. I'm just going to basically take the ride of humiliation into the rocks and hope it works out, which which I did. I survived. Um, only got a little a lot of, little ding in there, but it was definitely humiliating with the hundreds of photographers, and I'm the guy that's like coming up on the rocks and doing the walk of shame back to my buddies, who they, of course, had lost sight of me because there were so many people. And, and um, so I kind of imagine the disciples going through this. It's, this is it's dark out. Like, I imagine that there's, there's moonlight. The Galilee doesn't have city lights. It's, it's not a bright place. Um, there had to be some moonlight to sort of, so that they could see somewhat. They, they know they're off course. I, I imagine that they are, they know they're losing the battle. They're digging in. They're getting cold. They're getting frustrated with one another and the whole situation. They, they don't want to get pushed down all the way to the bottom end of the Sea of Galilee. Like, they don't. Like, you don't, you don't want to, qu- you don't quit in these, these situations. To get out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, you're in, you're in way more of a, a situation than if you just get to the shoreline. But they're trying to get over to Capernaum, and they end up way down south. And so they're, they're battling it out. They're battling it out. They're trying to get there. All in verse 24, we, we don't, I've kind of battered by the waves, and the wind was contrary. But if you were out in the boat that night, you would have been terrified for your life. It's now between 3 and 6.18. Uh, 3 and 6.18. I just read something. Uh, my, my brain's, uh, it's a long, it's between 3 and 6 a.m. So 3 to 6 a.m. is like the worst time of the day. Um, for those who work graveyards, for those who do anything, there's something about 3 to 6 a.m. There's like absolutely there's, there, there's a coldness in the air. Um, your mind starts just not registering because you're supposed to be asleep. I really feel sorry for, um, or I, I feel sorry for, and I'm super thankful for first responders who basically keep this watch on a regular basis uh, better them than me, but I'm thankful for them because they are sort of the, the watchdogs for our, our society. And, and so in Mark chapter 6, verse 48, 
as they're battling the storm, they're three to four miles out in the sea. They shouldn't be out that far. Uh, Mark records a very strange sort of how he words what's going on. He says in uh, Mark 6.48, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. That's not the strange part. It's this last phrase and says, and he intended to pass them by. And to hear commentators discuss what in the world does that mean is really funny. Like, I, I don't have the answer. I don't know if Jesus was trying to, like, sneak by them or I... Some would say, well, he, the wording's just really, you know, it's just really difficult wording. He just meant that he was going to them. But it says pass them by. I don't know. But so Jesus basically, oh, my boys are sweating. I better come to the rescue. So he's like, I'm just going to walk down to them. And he takes that first couple of steps under the water and just, you know, keeps walking three to four miles out. Now, this isn't like a glassy lake. This is, there's storms. So I imagine that as, as like the, you know, there's probably like, three to four foot swells coming. And he's kind of just walking up and down, walking up and down, uh, heading on the way out to the guys. Uh, Where are we at? Verse 25 here. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So Jesus makes his way out to them. There's there's wind. There's uh, mist flying off of the crests of the waves. Any of you that have seen sort of stormy waters, you can get this picture. It's loud. Um, and in verse 26, we see when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Now, when they cry out, it's the ghost. There's a word, you know, that, uh, the Holy Ghost people refer to. That's pneuma. This, this is uh, a word. I'm probably, I didn't write it down, but it's like fantasia. This is a, this is a, a, a different word. This isn't like the Holy Spirit ghost. This is sort of a, a ghost from, from demonic realms. Like it's a terrifying sort of thing. Um, all of the Gospels make sure to record that they all saw this. They're all terrified. They're crying out in fear for what they're seeing. Now, I have a similar story. Not, not that anybody I know is walking on water. But when I went through Hell Week, so back in, I think it was 1994, on the fourth day of Hell Week, you do what's called Around the World. And going around the world, you get, you're down in like almost Imperial Beach, and you basically hop into the San Diego Bay at its very southern point, and you have to paddle all the way around Coronado Island, and then you basically come in by the, by the morning time, you come in at Bud's Beach, which is basically at, 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 at uh, the, the amphibase right there. And so... We're paddling all night. It's Thursday. Well, probably it's really more like Friday morning. It was Thursday night, but but this is probably like 3 to 6 a.m. Um, we're on about two hours sleep for the whole week. And my buddy Tom, same guy that hurt his fingers, he was always a character. So he starts yelling at us. We're, we're in the middle of San Diego Bay. I remember seeing the skyline sort of, um, I think we were still south of the Coronado Bridge. He starts yelling at us. We're like, dude, what is wrong with you? He's like, you guys, wave to the lady. You're ticking her off. Wave to the lady. Like, Tom, what? There's, sorry, dude, there's 
There's no lady out here. And he gets frantic. He's like standing up in the boat and he's pointing. He's like, don't you see the Indian lady? She's right there. I'm like, Tom, there's no Indian lady. You're seeing stuff, bud. But he would have none of it. Like the only way we could get him to calm down and sit down is for all of us to like wave to this Indian lady. And so there's seven of us out in the San Diego Bay waving. Hi, Indian lady. How are you doing? How are you doing? And he's like, thank you, guys. Now she's not mad at us anymore. We can continue. We're like, okay, dude. Like, like. And the reason I bring this up is, you know, critics will say, well, this was just a hallucination. This is only, this is one night. This isn't like they'd had multiple nights of no sleep. And even if it was a hallucination, hallucinations don't happen by groups of seven or so people. Like, like you don't all have a simultaneous hallucination. So Tom had this hallucination. He'd been on two hours sleep for a whole week. He was convinced he saw this Indian lady. But then the other six of us who hadn't had any sleep we're like, dude, you're crazy. There's no Indian. Now, we basically said, hey, well, we're like, we'll wave to her to get you to calm down. But there was no lady. This isn't the situation here. It says that they, they all see this, what they think is like this ghost. They're terrified. They're crying out in fear. And about this time, Jesus apparently is close to them that he speaks to them. Now, I want to point out that as Jesus speaks to them, The storm is still raging. He's still standing on the water. He hasn't changed anything. And Jesus speaks to them in the midst of their storm. Like he doesn't calm the storm, but he calms them in the midst of it. And this is one of those that is beautiful. He tells them to take courage, to basically um, to do away with their fear, to be brave, to be courageous, to to know that it's going to be okay. And there's, there's something about the peace of God that as we walk with Christ, that we can be in situations that by all human appearances, by, by evaluating our circumstances, using our senses, we should be absolutely terrified. But that Christ is able to speak to us in the midst of these moments of sort of terror and fear um, that can calm, our, can, can calm our souls in a way that is just beyond words. See, 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 tomorrow is a two-year anniversary of, of, a, of a very traumatic event in my life. You guys will all just refer to it as Titus's second birthday. <laughs> but, but like for me, every, every time that, that, well, this is only the second time it's happened, but so far in his, his long life of two years, as his birthday approaches, I, I'm reminded of that night when, when basically Anna starts like bleeding three weeks before we get down there, we, we, I mean, long story short, emergency surgery, like truly emergency surgery, the surgeon to come out and say, you know, I'm, I'm not God, but all I know is if it was two to four minutes long, you would have lost them both. And that whole night was just, it was like watching a movie. It was so surreal. And I just, I'll never forget the sort of, as we got them in, we got them to the hospital from the ambulance and, and they basically take Anne away and I'm following along the gurney and then they go behind those two doors and they're like, you can't go. 
And I, I'm kind of like, what do you mean I can't go? That's my wife. I'm going, they're like, no, dude, you're not going into surgery. Like, you're staying here. And then they shut the doors, and I'm alone at Palomar Hospital, like, you know, 9 o'clock at night, all alone. There's nobody there. And, and I don't remember what I was preaching on the next day, but I, I remember in that surreal moment ha- having, having peace with God, like regardless of what happens. I remember sort of saying over and over again, kind of thinking, like, Lord, even if you take them both, I will still worship you. And, and I, it doesn't make sense in my brain. Like in my brain, it doesn't make sense. But I believe that, that, that Christ sort of spoke to me in that moment. I didn't hear an audible voice, but I feel like he, he spoke to me and he, he gave me this peace in the midst of that storm. And, and, and we got out of that storm and, I, and, I, and as I reflect, I always kind of go like, well, I don't, I don't know how I would have responded had they one or both of them died. But I, my prayer is that even if that had happened, and I'm thankful that it didn't happen, that I would still be worshiping my God the next day, knowing that he has a, a plan through it. And so here these guys are, they're terrified, and Jesus speaks to them. The storm is still raging. And Jesus says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Like, I think of post-resurrection, every time Jesus appears to these guys after he'd resurrection, the first thing he says to them is shalom. Peace be with you guys, relax, it's Okay. And then, and then we, um, in verse 28, we have Peter, who I love. I, I wish I could get into the mind of Peter. I wish we, I wish, I mean, we, we have his writings, but I, I wish there was like a book published by Peter, like memoirs of Peter's life. You know, like whenever a president sort of gets out of office, they write a memoir and they, they kind of share like what they were thinking as they did certain things. Um, no book like that exists for Peter, but I, I, for the life of me, I, I don't understand um, Peter's request here. There's still a storm. They're still being blown off. There's Jesus now. I, I, we have no idea how far off he is, but clearly it's enough for, G, for Peter to like want to walk to him on the water. And Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, Command me, command me to come to you on the water. Like, like why, why, like, why does Peter say this? Like, I'm trying to put myself in the boat, and if you're in a boat that's on, like, your reaction would be like, come quickly, I don't know what's going on. Get, get in the boat before you go in. It's dangerous down there. But, but Peter says, Lord, command me to come out to you. And I think of, like, at the end, you know, after Jesus, after Jesus is crucified, and He's risen again. There's the incident where Peter goes back to his vocation and he's out fishing and Jesus comes to the, comes to the, the edge of the shore and Peter sees him. And Peter jumps out of the boat to get to Jesus. I, like, I, I wonder, I'm convinced that Peter's trying to redeem himself. Like, I'm going to make up for everything and I'm going to walk on water to get back to Jesus again. Like, I'm going to show him that I have faith, but that time he sinks. Like, I, I don't know. It's so easy to, to, to give Peter a little grief uh, through this, the scriptures for his, his zeal, his his, uh, his, his, just his boldness. But as we sort of tease him, like there's two people in human history who've walked on water. We know about Jesus and we normally discredit Peter, but Peter actually walks on water. And so he says, hey, if you want me to come to you, just tell me to come and I'm going to come. And so Jesus says, come on, Peter, step out of the boat. 
And so Peter gets out. I don't have no, like, I wished, like, how did this go? Did he just, like, jump out? Did he kind of ease his foot out there to, to kind of test things out? Like, I still believe that this is, like, eerie. This is still between 3 and 6 in the morning. It's still dark out. It's still sort of, like, did he take, you know, like, I don't think he took off his clothes. Like, he, like, to prepare to be swimming. And so he said to Peter, come, and Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came towards Jesus. Um, I'm going to hold that thought here. Um, but seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to seek, he cried out, Lord, save me. And so he gets out, he starts walking. We're told that he sees the wind. You don't see the wind, but you see the evidence of the wind. And so like the, the, the howling, the, 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 like when you're on the ocean, for those of you who ever surf, like when there's like wind blowing and you can, like you can feel the mist of the water like hitting you, it's, it's like a sandblaster. And, and the waves are still going. The storm hasn't been calmed down at this point. And so Peter's now walking on the water and his mind begins to sort of look at the facts and and he becomes fearful. And as he becomes fearful, he begins to sink into the water. And here's another, um, just to point out to the critics. So, so those who try to explain this miracle from a, a rational sort of perspective, a, a, a non-miraculous way, what they would say is, oh, um, the Sea of Galilee just has sandbars that run out there. And, and uh, there's no sandbars in the Sea of Galilee like it's deep. There, there are places in the world, there, there are places in the Middle East where you can walk out, you, you know, miles and miles and miles and still be waist deep. Um, the Sea of Galilee is not one of these places. This is a, a mountainside and the mountains sort of just continue into the water. It's a big valley. Uh, so critics would say, well, Jesus just found a sandbar and, and, and he just sort of, he, he walked through the water like that. These same critics say the same thing about uh, Moses and the, the Israelis uh, crossing the sea, that, that there was really just a sandbar there. So if that's the case, then, then um, the Egyptian army, like Pharaoh's army, they all drowned in six inches of water, which is even more miraculous than what happened. Um, or, and then here, Peter, like he walks out to Jesus, and so he apparently sinks where there's a sandbar. It, it, they're trying to, this is a miracle. People don't walk on water. Like, I've tried this as a Christian a bunch of times. Normally, my swim trunks, like at the edge of the pool, like, how awesome would it be? Lord, I have faith. Let me do this and every time. <laughs> Apparently, my faith isn't as strong or, um, or there's no need for Jesus to pull this miracle off in me at the swimming pool with the kids. But still, I'll keep trying. And, uh, but this is a miracle. Like, like, we under, like, this is a miracle. Like, God created the laws in, in which we live, there, there's gravity, there's buoyancy, like, like wa water, you don't walk on water unless it's frozen. If it's frozen, then you can walk on it. But, but this isn't frozen water. This is a lake. This is, this is H2O in its liquid form. And Peter begins to walk. He sees the circumstances and he begins to be afraid. And he cries out one of the most powerful prayers that I think that there is in the New Testament or anywhere in the Bible, his prayer is simple, Lord, save me. Um, 
This is a prayer that we probably all have prayed. Um, if, if you're ever called out or you're in a scene that's traumatic um, and you're with somebody that's hurting or there's a situation at the hospital and you don't know the outcome, there's a lot of times when Christians get overly um, theological with lofty words. They try to remember every big word that they can think of and they have these super long prayers. Guys, you don't, like, like, like sometimes it's just like, Lord, help this person. Lord, we don't know what's to come. Help them, Lord. Uh, and Peter, this was his powerful prayer. He says, Lord, save me. Help, Lord. I'm about to go under. And I love this. And Jesus immediately stretched out his hand and he took hold of him. And he said to him, you, little, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? So he grabs hold of him. I don't think that he's scolding. I do think there's a, there's a lesson here. Um, so, so the opposite side, Jesus says, is he's sinking. You have little faith. Um, what caused him to sink? Well, if we were to go back up to verse 28, I have the word frightened circled, and I have a line down to you of little faith. And, and so his lack of faith has to do with sort of fear. And so in a certain sense, I think that the... Uh, if you have faith, faith is, in a certain sense, um, spiritual bravery. Like that you trust God in the midst of a circumstance that doesn't seem like mathematically, um, it, it just doesn't look like it's going to work out. But faith says, well, I trust God to sort of help me in this situation. And so when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. So as, as they, like, I... Did, did Jesus, like these are questions I have that I don't have the answer to. Did Jesus just continue walking to the boat but basically picking up Peter? Did he drag Peter in the water? Like, come on, kid, like let's get over to the boat, sling him up like a, you know, like a wet, a wet a sweater into the boat. And then it's not until he s- steps into the boat that everything gets calm. And just imagine this. These guys are terrified. They're afraid of their life. And as soon as Jesus gets into the boat, the, the wind stops. So this great storm that's sort of like engulfing them with the wind, it's loud. To be out on the ocean or a lake when it's glassy and calm at, at you know, like early dawn, early morning, it's so quiet. It's so calm. It's so relaxing. And so Jesus gets put into the boat. It goes immediately calm. And I think that these guys were just in absolute awe of who is this man? Who is this rabbi that we're following? Um, I believe that it galvanized their thinking as disciples. They had, they had, they had come from the, mirac- the miracles of the feeding of the, the 25,000 people to now they're terrified that the, their rabbi hops in, walks on water to them, hops in the boat, that everything calms down. I think that this was like a, just a, a key moment for them in their lives, and they understand that this Jesus is indeed the Messiah, and they're in total awe of him. And we're told in verse 33, and those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Like, I don't know, like, were they on their faces? Every time that we see people recognize the deity of Christ or the deity of God, they're on their face. So I don't know if these guys all, like, bowed, prostrate. It's, 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 
as best they can in this boat, basically worshiping Jesus. He, he receives the worship. Um, this is a huge thing. Like, Jesus allowed them to worship him as God because he is God. If he wasn't God, this would be blasphemous. This, this is the very reason and why, why Christ was put to death. And then we're told when they'd crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. Um, and so as we, clo- like as we close here, like I've been thinking, like what, what's the, the, the point of this passage? There's some ones, like normally you hear this message and people like, will give you a message on like, oh, you really should be, you should be praying more like Jesus prayed. Like you guys should really feel guilty because you don't, none, like none of us, I don't think if we're honest with ourselves, pray as we ought to pray. Or, or we've, heard, we've all heard the message about, hey, it's, a, it's 2016. This year, we're all going to get out of the boats for Jesus. And you got to like just take risks. And, 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 and I do think that when you, when you follow God, like, like he's going to convict you. He's going to lead you. And, and, and in my experience, when God's calling us to do something, there, there is sort of, there, there is um, the opportunity for fear to enter where, where we get rattled. But when I look at the whole of this like, why is this story here? We know from the other accounts that the story begins with the false worship of the people on the beach, that they wanted to make him king for all of the wrong reasons. And by the end of this story, the disciples are in the place before God where they are worshiping their Messiah as king for all of the right reasons. Suddenly they're on his agenda. Suddenly they're bowed down before him. It's not about bread. It's not about their like, needs being met. It's simply that this Jesus is the son of God and they bow down and they worship. And I think that's the heart of the story that we would come to understand who this Christ is. That we would bow down before him and worship and give him our lives. And Father, we do Lord, as I look at this story, I know that this story can be a difficult story to take in because we know that people just don't walk on water. We know that bread just isn't multiplied. We know that things just don't happen miraculously. And they don't because you created this world. You created certain rules and certain laws and things that govern how things work. But as we look at your working through human history, as we see this Christ, this this Messiah in the flesh, Lord, that he had the ability to to, to bypass the very laws in which he created, um, that he could heal brokenness, that he can walk on water, that he can create out of nothing. And so, Father, I do ask that you would uh, do a work in our hearts, Lord, for those who maybe don't know you as Messiah, Lord. I, I, I pray, Father, that you would um, help them, Lord, t- to come to a place where they would see Jesus um, as the Christ that he is. And, Father, for those of us who have come to Jesus uh, with saving faith, Lord, um, I pray, Father, that you would keep us um, on track, Lord, that our agenda would be right Uh, with God, namely that we are seeking your agenda, not our own. Father, I pray that you would help us to see um, how awesome Christ really is, that we would understand um, 
Father, that you are an awesome God. Lord, so often we're fearful, we're terrified of life's circumstances. And Lord, as we look at the story of, of Jesus walking on water, calming the storm, Lord, it's been said that we are either um, in the midst of a storm, coming out of a storm, or heading into a storm. Lord, this life that we live is hard, and it can be terrifying apart from you. And so, Father, I pray for those that are in the midst of a storm or heading into a storm or coming out of a storm. Father, I pray that you administer to each one of us, Lord, that you would increase our faith, Lord, that we would be courageous. Um, Lord, help us to trust you in this life. Uh, we are thankful, Lord, that our faith isn't in vain, that you are worthy, that you are mighty, that you are able to care for us and to sustain us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.